Hello everyone, I'm here this morning with Sam Abrams. Sam is a professor at Sarah Lawrence College. He's a professor of political science. At the moment, he's on leave working at the American Enterprise Institute. He's going to return to Sarah Lawrence in the fall. Um, he does a lot of work on political sociology and political polarization. And you may have read a couple of his blog posts on Heterodox Academy, both of which are about polarization in the professoriate. So welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so a couple of things I wanted to talk about today. First is your work on the New England Professoriate and how you ended up doing that work and summary of what you found. And then I wanted to talk a bit about uh, your newer work on political polarization and what professors in the country right now should know about polarization, uh, especially if they're talking to their students about ideological differences and partisan differences, what would be useful for young professors to know. So to start out with, uh, with the New England Professoriate, can you talk a bit about what you found there? Sure, and it wasn't just the New England Professoriate, it was nationally. Uh, this research started for, for two reasons. The, f the first was that when I entered Sarah Lawrence College, I was immediately uncomfortable. I had hoped and was excited about joining a community that was engaged deeply in scholarship, that took the idea of search for truth very seriously. And by the second day of my mm -hmm. time at the college, I realized that we were not necessarily looking for truth in the most open-minded sense, but that people had ideologies, people had lenses they brought to the table from the minute they entered the college, this is the faculty, and they expected you to come in with such a lens. Uh, I actually came in without a particularly strong lens. I am uh, an empirical social scientist. I look for data. Uh, I try to operationalize social questions and answer these questions. And it was very clear very quickly that many of my colleagues were not interested in that. They already sort of knew where they were going. They were trying to figure out how to get there with certain literatures. And then mm -hmm. they tried to basically monopolize and create a very narrow worldview for our students. That, that really mm -hmm. concerned me. Mm -hmm. And um, for years, I engaged in what some of our colleagues at Heterodox have done, which is passing on the right. I kept myself quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, I picked very few fights. Uh, I, I didn't lie, but I wouldn't necessarily be as honest uh, with uh, colleagues and students in terms of how I would like to present certain material. Mm -hmm. uh, now that I am tenured, I have no problem admitting this very publicly. And uh, do I regret it? No, because again, I wasn't lying. I just mm -hmm. wasn't as forthright about certain things as I, I would have liked to have been. Mm -hmm. And uh, once tenure uh, arrived, I, I realized something is wrong, what can I do? And I realized as an empirical social scientist, it's my job to look at these things. And I was able to find some data and show conclusively that my feelings about the academy being extremely left of center were undeniably true. Uh, mm -hmm. At a ratio of about eight to one, every liberal uh, leaning professor, there's maybe one conservative professor. Mm -hmm. And I started writing these things up. It garnered a fair amount of attention. People were very, very interested. And I started looking at, you know, deeper breakdowns of this and discovered that in a place like New England, uh, that ratio goes from 8 to 1 nationally to 28 to 1, uh -huh. uh, meaning it's almost impossible to find a um, right of center or, or, in many cases, centrist uh -huh. uh, professor on, on college and university campuses. Yeah. Uh, I wrote this up in the New York Times. I wrote this up in a number of other uh, locations. And it just took off and clearly it touched a nerve. And I, I'm glad that it did because viewpoint diversity and the idea of real exchange of ideas, real discourse, 
is too important. Uh, and, and to lose that in higher ed and the academy mm -hmm. is a disaster for this country and our students. Okay. So was there a hypothesis that made you ask the question, is the New England professoriate different, or were you exploring regional differences? So there was no explicit hypothesis per se. This yeah. was actually exploring various cleavages that we would find in the United States. In my other work, uh, I spent a lot of time writing about regionalism. Uh, mm -hmm. How different is the South? How does New England look? How does the specific coast look? Mm -hmm. And I ran quite a few different analyses on the data to look for, for cleavage. And uh, to my surprise, regionally it began to, to show up in a way that it was, again, unexpected. I, I expected there to be some difference insofar as New England and the Pacific Coast would be a little left of center. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect it to be as left of center as it okay. was. Once you see that, you realize this is not a surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, New England is dotted with traditional liberal arts colleges. Uh, mm -hmm. New England is dotted with uh, small faculties and people and faculties engage in homophily. We like to mm -hmm. hire uh, people of our own uh, background, our own type. It removes mm -hmm. dissonance. It removes a lot of uh, right. conflict within the faculty. It's a lot easier if everyone in the room agrees than to right. have the room shouting at each other over pedagogical questions or curricular questions. Okay. Um, I was wondering about the hypothesis because there is a tradition of puritanical culture too in New England, the founders of Massachusetts, for example. Uh, do you think that relates in any way to what's going on here, or, or is that just incidental? So I actually thought that it, it may, uh, yeah. and I, I did look into that, but the reality is there are quite a few other colleges and regions in the United States that also have religious uh, backgrounds and mm -hmm. other sort of founding uh, ideologies that might suggest a certain progressive worldview. Mm -hmm. So I, I just did not see that. As, as strongly. It was just mm -hmm. this pronounced liberalism in New England among mm -hmm. the faculty. Okay. And so when you were doing your PhD, did you have a more balanced department or less political no. department? No. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a challenge. Uh, yeah. I did my PhD up at Harvard yeah. and uh, I mean it was run by progressives. Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with progressives. There's nothing wrong with that worldview. And there's nothing wrong with those sorts of research questions. But I, I, I'd be lying if I said that if you didn't fall into line with mm -hmm. that, it was hard to get funding. It was hard to find the mentorship and the sort of support mm -hmm. you needed. And, mm -hmm. and uh, this has been a problem in, in higher ed, which is why I myself often recommend people of a certain disposition avoid it. Not because mm -hmm. I want them to, but I, I worry about a funding. Uh, how are you going to get through? Where are you going to find the resources? What mm -hmm. grant making organizations are going to be out there to help you? And then B, once it's a, you're a known progress, not progressive, right of center, or even centrist on certain things, yeah. uh, that may be hard. That may hurt you on the job market. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I'm right. very comfortable saying that right now at, at my own employer, Sarah Lawrence. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very clear that when we search for certain positions, my colleagues, and mm -hmm. I'm very happy to say this publicly, mm -hmm. have very clear ideological expectations and look for those. I've been okay. lucky to try to say we need balance, and I will always mm -hmm. say we need balance, but okay. I see it happening in my own backyard. Okay. So uh, when it comes to you getting hired at Sarah Lawrence during your interview process, did you sort of try to minimize any clues that you might not be progressive, or how did you handle that? Sure. So for that, I, I did uh, keep a lot of my opinions to myself. I okay. talked up, quite frankly, uh, the left of center faculty I worked with, whether it was Steve uh -huh. Scotchful or William Julius Wilson, people uh -huh. like that. And it's all true. I did work with them. I was in the inequality program at uh -huh. the Kennedy School with them and, and really loved them as mentors, teachers, and colleagues. Uh -huh. But I didn't necessarily agree with them or, or, or the worldview that, that uh -huh. many of them maintained. 
And uh, after I got there, it was also revealed that the college was made well aware of the fact that it had this ideological problem and that there were mm -hmm. issues in terms of needing someone who did empirical work okay. and needing someone who could bring a little bit more balance. Uh, I was told that I was uh, an ideological affirmative action hire, actually, okay. a few years right. into the... Uh, yeah. In, in, into my tenure there, and, and uh, that was not surprising when they actually told me that. Okay. Um, and since you're working at a think tank now, I use research from think tanks, but something I often wonder is when you're working for a think tank that was, uh, it was clearly founded for an ideological purpose, how much pressure in the think tank world in general, both, uh, I mean, across partisan think tanks, do you think there is once you're within a think tank to, to come up with conclusions that... Uh, Let's say the director finds happy. Mm -hmm. the director likes sure. It. So that that's something that you know I think a lot of faculty wrestle with. I certainly wrestled with it. Uh -huh. uh, you know, is there some expected quid pro quo? Is yeah. there some uh, thumb on the scale where before we start or I start, I'm expected yeah. to have a certain conclusion? Uh, first and foremost, I would not take a job in any mm -hmm. way, shape, or form where there was such an expectation. That's the beauty of tenure. It's not mm -hmm. worth it to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an ideological purist in that regard. You know, mm -hmm. I go where the data leads. Right. Uh, and you know, I used to make the argument we're not polarized. Some mm -hmm. things look very polarized right now, and that's right. what the data is showing. Mm -hmm. I can't argue otherwise. That's right. what I believe the truth is. Uh -huh. um, I am 100% sure there are numerous think tanks where there are certain expectations of a particular worldview and a particular... Uh, set of findings or ideological bend you would have. Um, I, on the other hand, have never personally been subjected to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I uh, can tell you that in my time uh, at AI, mm -hmm. I've never had anyone suggest anything other than go figure out what you'd like to figure out and write it up and we'll support you. It's And, and had it been any different, I wouldn't mm -hmm. have accepted the, the, the role. I. Uh, personally, feel complete freedom uh, in my role at AI yeah. that way, uh, and I'm very, very honored to be able to do that. That's great to hear. I mean, I'm about to finish my PhD, and one of the things people discuss online on virtualphd.com, I think that's the name of the site, uh, where you discuss careers outside academia. Um, it's uh, sorry, it's not virtual PhD. It has a different name, but people are talking sure. about alternative careers in think tanks, and there are a lot of questions. One of which is are you expected to reach certain conclusions in advance? And I think a lot of graduate students just don't know much. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly places that do, but yeah. I would say yeah. it's not really across the board. The other misconception that, that I think exists is that, yes, there's a rivalry for influence. There's no question mm -hmm. that we want to influence policy and we want mm -hmm. to have stature. Right. But I, I, I would be remiss in, 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 in failing to point out the fact that uh, I have very good friends all over the place in the various think tanks. I have very wonderful relationships with scholars mm -hmm. at Brookings and uh, wonderful relationships with scholars for the Center for American Progress. Uh, yeah. We are collaborating on work all the time. Yeah. Uh, we talk all the time and I would say that my relationships with some of my uh, colleagues at these other think tanks are in fact yeah. far more collegial, far more productive and far more civil and in many cases engaging than some of my faculty colleagues. Okay. And I think one of the reasons for that is that in the think tank world, you're, you can't exist in the same academic bubble many right. of my faculty colleagues do. So, you know, hopefully other graduate students are seeing this and realizing yeah. that actually the, the think tank world may, in many respects, be more pleasant. Uh, uh -huh. uh, yes, it's cutthroat, uh -huh. 
Mm -hmm. but there's no guaranteed employment necessarily in a think tank and mm -hmm. we have to engage with others and the beauty of having to engage with others mm -hmm. is to say I love having you know drinks with colleagues from CAP we may disagree but I always learn something fascinating and they're mm -hmm. always willing to listen and I, I hope I'm willing to listen uh, mm -hmm. to them I certainly try okay so for graduate students who are centrist or uh, conservative or libertarian or even progressive but not entirely happy with the homogeneity of academia, would you encourage them to look into think tanks uh, during the final years of your PhD or would you recommend they go into academia first and then maybe try to get an appointment at a think tank? I, 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 think, it's a, I think it's a challenge. I think the job market in both of these areas is problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think there isn't a lot of turnover and I don't think we see the, the academy growing in terms of uh, real positions. Uh, we certainly see it growing in terms of ad hoc and adjunct sort of uh, employment, which I think is uh, problematic for both the academy students and, and our future in terms of our research. Uh -huh. uh, I, I would say that they are very different roles. One is very much ivory tower and allows you to disregard policy, disregard engaging uh -huh. in the real world if you so choose. Uh -huh. uh, the other explicitly requires and demands as part of its role real world engagement. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't say one over the other, they're just different roles. For me, the joy has always been to be in both, to say, let's be ivory tower, let's figure some stuff out, and then mm -hmm. let's spin that out to use it in a productive way. Um, mm -hmm. Fair amount of academia, academia, ugh, academic work doesn't uh, require that or demand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some so of it does. I think work on polarization does. Sorry? I think work on polarization, work on the okay. academy has practical and relevant applications, so it's good right. to work with a think right. tank on that. Okay. But there are also numerous questions that you know many other academics ask that may not have policy implications, and I think there's a world for both. We mm -hmm. need people who do both. Okay. So that's a good segue into your work on polarization. Uh, you've been working on that topic for at least 10 years, but you've got two books coming out in the near future. What's the publication date for them? Uh, everything is now in limbo and to be determined. Okay. Uh, and I'm very, I'm very happy to say that. Again, yeah. with tenure, I don't have to get it out until it's done and right. 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 And the reason I say everything is up in the air is uh, we're in what I like to call and other colleagues call an, an era of unstable majorities. Things are very mm -hmm. weird right now in politics. Uh, if you look to old, earlier eras and. Mm -hmm. In DC, you would see some, a fair amount of stability. One party would be dominant for a fair amount of time. Mm -hmm. Would have a governing coalition. It would have an ideology. Yeah. Uh, flip flap back and forth. Mm -hmm. You may be in, in the era, you know, in, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where there may be one party dominance in the White House, but then there's fair partly strong party dominance in Congress, and there's mm -hmm. sort of an understanding as uh, you know a stable state. Right. If you look at the uh, post 92-94 Republican Revolution. The White House keeps flip-flopping, Congress keeps flip-flopping, who's yeah. controlling the House, and yeah. more importantly, if you look at the parties directly, and I wrote about this in the New York Times on Election Day, I, yeah. I said regardless of what happens in 2016, both parties have revealed that they are deeply fractured. The mm -hmm. Democrats have not rallied behind Clinton, they haven't rallied behind Sanders whatsoever, and the Republicans are in complete shambles. It's not clear what's governing Republicans, it's not really mm -hmm. clear what's governing Democrats, if you look at the... Democratic uh, race for chair of, of mm -hmm. the NBC, you know, it was deeply fractured, and even with certain uh, decisions made, met many in the party are unhappy. Mm -hmm. So, trying to write about polarization is a challenge right now because something is going on. Uh, mm -hmm. People are unhappy. Parties are 
in complete disarray. There is no clear ideological leaning in either of them. There's no clear dominant power in either of them. And uh, as a result, a lot has been put on hold because this is just a crazy time. Mm -hmm. We'll look back at this and go, this is a great chance for, I think, okay. a lot of the problems that have been going on in the electorate to sort out. We may start seeing more cohesive parties again. We may see clear ideological leanings. Okay. But the Republicans were inconsistent. The Democrats were inconsistent. From limousine liberals to libertarians who and conservatives who would want to regulate private behavior, these mm -hmm. never made any sense, right. uh, both on the left and the right. Mm -hmm. So, um, one of the benefits of being an academic is to say, look, I don't have a deadline necessarily. I'm going to hit the pause mm -hmm. button and I'm just going to wait yeah. and we're going to see what goes on. And that's uh -huh. where things stand right now. Okay. Um, people look for answers. It is so crazy. We have no idea what's going on. The one thing I'd like to say is, A, again, this is just a continuation of this steady state of instability that's been going on since the mid-90s, mm -hmm. where different parties have been pushing very, very hard. People like to say that Obama was a uniter, not a divider, but quite frankly, mm -hmm. he was the most polarizing president we have on memory. He enacted quite a bit of legislation through um, executive order and through bureaucratic wrangling, not mm -hmm. through consensus building on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. I'm not criticizing him for that, per se, but that is not a way to build long-term stable majorities, especially not in Congress, which is now trying to repeal and see Trump going in the opposite direction. Okay. And um, quite, quite frankly, um, what I say to students and, and, and people alike is that, you know, checks and balances, albeit slow, are already mm -hmm. working. Con you know, we, we do, Congress may not be acting, but the courts are certainly acting, bureaucratic mm -hmm. agencies are acting. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, quite frankly, in a little bit over the 100 days, we already see talks for impeachment. There are questions about mm -hmm. independent prosecutors. So it's not mm -hmm. as if we see this rise to power right now from the Trump Right. folks and it's yeah. out of control. It looks like it's out of control but other people are already stepping up and, and, and changing things right. uh, and pushing back. So it's a messy, crazy time. I can't say really that much more than that other than to say it's okay. messy yeah. and yeah. I don't have to say more because as an academic my goal is to step back and say let's wait mm -hmm. and see. Okay. Writing more turns me into a pundit which I think is exactly what I don't want to be. Okay. Um, well I wanted to talk about polarization because even though I don't strictly speaking, teach about politics. Um, obviously, I was teaching the semester when Trump was elected, and right. you know, people have questions about that. So uh, I point people to Norm Ornstein's work, your colleague. I don't know if you talked to Norm at work or run into mm -hmm. him, but Norm, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, Norm Ornstein works at the AEI, um, and he has written um, a number of books. One of the most recent ones, which has received a lot of press, uh, is called It's Even Worse Than It Looks, and it's about mm -hmm roughly speaking, polarization from about the mid-90s onwards, and the, the thesis is that Newt Gingrich uh, adopted extremist tactics, and the yep. Republican Party became more extremist and radical, even though both parties became polarized to some degree. So um, I pointed my students to a talk by him. I also pointed them to a debate at AEI that you can find on YouTube between Norm and another fellow at AEI who believes that Norm's thesis is wrong. Um, so I found that useful, but if you wanted, uh, so what advice would you have for a professor who's trying to explain to his or her students what exactly has happened in the last 20 years. And admittedly, you've said the last one or two years have been very confusing, but if you wanted to give a give students a picture of what has happened from, say, the Gingrich era onwards, how would you, how do you describe that to students? Oh boy, uh, so there's quite a bit that's been written about this. Uh, there, there's a, a good book by Sean Theriot, who's a professor at UT, who talks about the rise of Gingrich. I, I mm -hmm. would 
look at Congress, quite frankly. Um, and I think Norm Ornstein's thesis is entirely right. This mm -hmm. occurred because Gingrich was, first of all, Gingrich is a PhD in history. Gingrich knows about institutional norms and institutional structures. Mm -hmm. And basically, once he sort of tipped the scale and was able to engage in what I would call sort of a bullying tactic, it was not this sort of collegial mm -hmm. back and forth dialectic that used to exist in Congress. It sort of sped us down this path, if you will, toward mm -hmm. this polarization because yeah. he put everyone in one direction. You're either with them or against them. Uh -huh. And the only way to respond to it is to escalate on the other side. And it just kept yeah. escalating up and up and up. I think that uh, Norm is exactly right about this. I think a fair number of uh, academics who study polarization in Congress would, would certainly see that. Uh -huh. um, so no, I, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I would encourage people to read more history and to understand more about norms, to understand, pun not intended, of course, um, but that, that to, to read more about how Congress works and how institutions work and to realize that um, I still believe most Americans are, and, and my work over the last 10 to 15 years on this has shown yeah. that Americans are very practical. They're mm -hmm. not that ideological. There is a small subset of ideologues. These mm -hmm. are very engaged individuals, but the average American yeah. is actually reasonable and thoughtful. Mm -hmm. But when institutions that govern, institutions that set the agenda, and institutions that set the tone uh, mm -hmm. become polarized, our choices become polarized over and over and over again. And as mm -hmm. such, when you have polarized choices, you find that you're choosing between a rock and a hard place. You're mm -hmm. not happy with anything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you realize I have to pick one or the other. And what mm -hmm. do I do? And it disengages people or it radicalizes people. Mm -hmm. uh, it does both. Yeah. And then we find that we're in this position where we are today. Uh, you know, again, I appreciated uh, President Obama's rhetoric about mm -hmm. being a uniter, not a divider. We're not red America or blue America. We're one America or purple America, as I like to write. Yeah. But yeah. the problem with that is that, and we saw this with the backlash in Trump, quite a few uh, Americans felt that they were ignored, that their dignity mm -hmm. was ignored. As the economy was changing, he was speaking to a particular subset of Americans, but not all mm -hmm. Americans. And not a surprise, as I've written in quite a few locations, mm -hmm. we see a very radical right respond to that. We see that here and we see that in, in Europe as well. Mm -hmm. So understanding history, but understanding institutions and leaders and how leaders prime and, and, and set the agenda is very, very important now. Uh, also, mm -hmm. you know, I, I like to remind people that we have an obligation to participate. Mm -hmm. At a local level, people stay home more often than not. We need to demand participation on a local level of individuals who are centrist and balanced, not extremists, because mm -hmm. these people set the stage for it to aggregate mm -hmm. up to make choices that end up being more extreme. Okay. Well, on Obama, I've read in Norm's research, his own research, that uh, to some degree the Republican strategy was to obstruct uh, the ACA so that mm -hmm. they could portray him as a failure as a president. So does your research show that that narrative has some validity to it, or do you think... Uh, I, I think there's some truth to that, uh, but I, I would say the big issue now is obstruct, obstruct, obstruct for everyone. Uh -huh. this, is, this is not helpful. This is, this is irresponsible governance across the uh -huh. board. Uh, I think we're, you know, if Democrats could do it right now, they would. They just mm -hmm. are in such shambles if you look at the, the party leadership that they can't figure it out. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you look at various uh, road shows uh, of, of, of Perez and Sanders going on the road uh, mm -hmm. trying to rally Democrats, you see that they are not speaking to each other. The audience is deeply fractured. Mm -hmm. uh, obstruction is unfortunately a dominant and viable strategy in Congress until some mm -hmm. civility and until some uh, maturity reemerges into these chambers. 
Right. Uh, my fear is that, again, once you've gone grim trigger nuclear, the idea that mm -hmm. you've just, again, tipped the scale, it's going to be very hard to ratchet the civility back. Right. That's my great fear. Right. I hate to be, uh, you know, a fear yeah. monger here, but, but I'm so, worried about that. Yeah. So speaking of regionalism, do you, is there a state in the U.S. or a region right now where um, where there's less polarization or where, where the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are working, are trying to build consensus to some degree? Uh, well, there's some states that are less polarized, and then there's some states where there is an attempt to build consensus. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it all depends on how you spin it. After the 2016 election, you know, Cal the state of California looks polarized, very, mm -hmm. very much so, uh, based on electoral outcomes. I, I have a piece in, uh, where is it, Real Clear Politics, that actually talks about the fact that if you actually look at party registration, in mm -hmm. these same locations, we've never seen a greater number of independents who are willing to swing in either direction. Right. And districts seemingly look polarized. Yeah. Uh, there were only uh, there's only one area county actually in in California's counties that is strongly left, and that would be the county of San Francisco. But even okay. places like Orange County, for instance, mm -hmm. are not as uh, right of center as you would think. In fact, it's quite balanced, Orange County. There are some okay. states like like Colorado where you do see a lot of attempts to govern through consensus through uh, with both parties. And there's some mm -hmm. smaller states, and when I say smaller states, I don't mean geography, but I mean population-wise, yeah. Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, where yeah. people might say, look, I'm a Republican, but I believe in these ideas. I'm a Democrat, but I believe in these ideas. Even with someone like Sanders, Sanders is a card-carrying NRA member. Well, I have to yeah. double-check that, but he certainly was, and yeah. uh, you know. A gun owner, and that offends a lot of his progressive uh, constituents. Mm -hmm. But so there, there are numerous examples of states where things are working uh, together, and people are trying to uh, go toward the middle. Uh, mm -hmm. But again, politics occurs on many levels, and this right. is why I encourage folks to to pay attention to the state and local level, where the fruit is easier to to grab, and mm -hmm. you can actually have a lot of influence pretty quickly. So when you look at states like Colorado and Wyoming and Idaho. Do you find that that consensus building is also maybe reflected in universities, and there's there's maybe less um, there's less shutting down of, of conservative views at the university, or less disinviting? I, I don't I, I can't speak to the big state schools there because uh -huh. I don't know. What I can say is that I I'm very pleased to say that I know that the University of Colorado system has gone out of its way, for instance, uh -huh. to think about balance. I mean, they've brought, they've established chairs to try to bring in people, folks of conservative uh, and libertarian thought. They've made overt efforts to do this. Now, uh, I think that raises another question of should we have litmus tests and go, well, are you a conservative or are you a progressive? Should we consider you for this based on your ideological right. leaning? Questions of academic freedom with that, that we need to be very careful about. Mm -hmm. But I would say that, uh, ironically, uh, Colorado has been leading the charge for trying to realize that Sometimes there is that these places are out of balance, and have, they have taken steps okay. to bring some balance to their campuses. So kudos right. again to the Colorado. Right, uh, and I know one thing I think that's good about Colorado is, at least to my knowledge, there hasn't been um, any student movement against that trying to get Colorado to shut that down. Right. One thing about the students that I that as a teacher, and I try to teach at a number of schools because it's really wonderful to meet as many folks as I can, and I like to mm -hmm. lecture at as many schools as I can. Uh, a, I like I. I, I like getting a t-shirt, but more yes. importantly, I like, you know, seeing various places, understanding their norms, and more importantly, understanding the students and what sort of, seeing if I can take their pulse. Yeah. One of the things that my 
empirics have shown is that while faculty have made, taken a hard left, college freshmen haven't. College mm -hmm. freshmen are a little left of center. The average American is a little right of center. But uh, compared when to you're 19... saying left and right, are you talking about socially or economically or, or both? I, I can't answer that. I would okay. say self-report ideological leanings okay. in this case. Yeah. don't have uh, enough hard data to, to pinpoint concern, you know, what, what on okay, spectrum yeah, it is, self-report yeah. data here. Um, but, you know, students are self-reporting ideologically being less liberal than they were in the 60s. Okay. And in my experience, uh, teaching students in a very intimate sort of way, as a liberal arts prof, we really do get to know our students. We don't necessarily lecture to 500. And even when I've done that, I would say I know a fair number of the students. It's always just a personal thing of mine. Yeah. I, I would say that um, many of these students are fairly open-minded. Many of them want these ideas. Many of them want to even argue with you about it, which okay. is uh, sometimes a lot of work to handle, yes. but also a joy. Yeah. So I, I have found, and the data seems to support this, that you know the liberalism and the progressivism that's problematically out of balance is a yeah. faculty issue but not necessarily a student issue. Students take cues from professors, and it'd be right. interesting if we could figure out are students being changed because of this? I don't have good data on that yet. Right. But I know that when coming in, they're not right. blank slates, but they're definitely open uh, to hearing quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I find that if you engage with students in a very honest way, which I certainly try to do, and say, look, I struggle yeah. with these questions. You know, let me show you this book, but let me yeah. show you this book. Yeah. They don't reject it out of hand. They actually yeah. consider think about it quite okay. reasonably. And uh, that has been a very pleasant uh, surprise as a teacher. Okay, great. Well, thank you for your time. I think we'll wrap things oh, up fun. here. I really appreciate it. Uh, once again, this is Sam Abrams. And um, thanks again for your time. We appreciate uh, the posts you've written for Heterodox Academy. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, you can find them on our blog at heterodoxacademy.org. One is about the professoriate in general, and one is about the New England professoriate in particular. And so, more coming. Sorry? And a few more coming. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. Um, and an upcoming uh, a paper, I believe you released it just online for now, but people at Heterodox helped you with the research for the paper about Absolutely. conservatives being happy but staying under the radar. Exactly right. Yes, yes. All right. Well, thank you. Take care. Thanks. Appreciate it. Bye.